Morning Hillside. It is Friday morning at uh, 9-ish a.m. and that means it's time for our Friday morning devotion in which we are continuing to look at 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians 14 today. Uh, and uh, really, it's, it's sort of a continuation of things that Paul has already begun to go over in the last uh, couple chapters. Uh, and there is a lot that could be talked about from this passage today. I mean, for example, uh, we could try and tackle the subject of whether the gifts that will be mentioned in the text uh, still exist today. I mean, we could try and take that tack where we, you know, figure out do the spiritual gifts that were talked about in the first century of the church are they still actively going on now? Uh, personally, I think there's there's some good arguments on both sides, but I do lean towards the idea that gifts can and still do take place today. Uh, we could talk about what tongues were in the first century. Uh, are they just another language, or are they some sort of sort of ecstatic heavenly language? I personally lean towards the idea uh, that it's just another language that needs to be interpreted. But the reality is, as we look at the text before us, what occurs to me is that these things that I've just mentioned, as important as they may be, are not the main focus of the text of chapter 14. The main focus of the text, as I think we'll see, is actually about how the Corinthian church should conduct themselves as they gather for a worship service. Nine times in our passage, Paul mentions the word church in the context of them, quote, coming together, verse 26 here. And, and really, that's what it's all about. Now, if you were to ask the average Christian out there what the main elements of worship uh, are, a worship service are, I would imagine that you'd get answers that are all over the map. I suppose most would emphasize uh, preaching or uh, music. Some might emphasize communion, depending on what tradition they come for, uh, from, while others might emphasize prayer. Others would emphasize order and predictability, while others within Christendom would, or, would emphasize spontaneity and unpredictability. And all these things, I think, can be elements of our worship services and can be good things, but the truth is, the scriptures give us quite a bit of freedom in regard to this, in this sense. Uh, we can have different styles of music. Uh, we can have scripture read at different times during the service. It doesn't happen to have to happen at a specific time. Uh, we could, for example, uh, pray at different times. I mean, there is some wiggle room. Uh, nevertheless, there is some guidance for us, broadly speaking, in this chapter that we're going to dig into today. So it's not exhaustive, but at least it will show us the basics of a healthy or right worship service as we gather. First of all, what you'll hear in this text is that it should be guided and filled with God's word. If we are to worship rightly, it must be guided and filled with his word. Uh, just to bring you up to speed on the context of the passage again, Paul has spent the last two chapters of his letter addressing the whole dynamic of, of spiritual gifts for them. And um, in, in at least the earliest days of the Christian church, uh, God's spirit was performing signs and wonders in order to validate the message that the church was spreading, namely, of course, the message about Jesus. And one of these signs was an ability to speak a foreign language, which in our text is called a tongue or tongues. So in Acts 2, when the church 
kind of gets, gets moving on the day of Pentecost. God gives all of his apostles and messengers abilities to speak the language of the people that had been gathered there for the festival. When we get to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he has to correct them because they are... Um, they have these gifts, but they are abusing them. And in chapter 13, they're actually shown to be haughty about the gifts that they have. And it's in that context now that Paul writes these words at the beginning of chapter 14. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now let's just stop there. What in the world am I talking about? What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, here's the big idea. Having the spirit-gifted ability to speak a different language in a moment so that the gospel can be communicated to somebody who doesn't speak the language that's common to the congregation you're in would be a great gift, Paul says. That's great. I wish all of you had that ability to do that. But being able to prophesy is more desirable. Now, what is prophecy? What is that ability? Well, I think we're prone to thinking that it was somebody who had the ability to predict the future um, based on what God had told them about the future. And that can be connected to prophecy. It certainly could have that flavor to it, especially in the Old Testament. But really, if you look at it throughout all of the context of Scripture, to prophesy ultimately is just to declare the Word of God. It was God's word being shared that's the main focus of prophecy, not whether it contains predictions or whatnot about the future. That is a secondary or tertiary aspect of prophecy. So Paul's big point here is, as great as it might be that you could be supernaturally filled with the ability to speak in a foreign language, if no one understands you, it's not really that valuable. What's more valuable is to be able to speak the word of God in a way that's understandable. So if you look at a typical service here at Hillside, you are going to see the entire service from start to finish is filled with the word of God in the common vernacular of the area we live in. That's based on passages like this that tell us that we ought to seek to proclaim the word throughout so it's in our songs, and it's read multiple times. It's in our prayers, and of course, it's in our sermons. That leads to the next point about what Paul's going to say, and that is our worship service should be guided by a desire to be clear. In other words, for all to understand. Now, why do I say this? Listen again to Paul, verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves 
If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Paul's whole point here is to make sure that whatever we're doing in the service is, is clear and understandable. Why? Well, so, as he says at the end of verse 12 in chapter 14, so that everyone can be built up. Now, who is everyone here? Well, it includes both believers and unbelievers that would gather in the church building for a service. Look at verse 16. If you give thanks with your spirit, that's another way of Paul saying speaking in tongues, it's, you know, between you and God, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, please note this. Paul is instructing them to at least partially adapt their worship service so that the unbeliever who enters can at least understand what's actually going on. Now, of course, this may seem like an obvious point to us, but it hasn't always been. I mean, obviously, we can think of maybe the most glaring example of where people literally gathered to hear something that they couldn't understand when we think about the traditional practice within our Roman Catholic friends' masses up until Vatican II, in which the whole service was spoken in Latin, even though the vast majority of people that gathered in the church did not understand Latin. Paul is saying, no, we, we ought to do things so that the people who gather wherever we're at understand. And it's not just, of course, Rome that had this issue, but it's also Protestants have done this too. Uh, we're, we're fond of, you know, sometimes it's uh, jokingly referred to as Christianese. Someone can walk into a church and we're using jargon that, uh, especially us preachers from the pulpit, good gracious. I mean, you know, especially when you're young as a preacher, you want to show that you know something. So you pull out all these big $10 uh, theological, uh, you know, philosophically deep words. And the reality is that's fine if the preacher goes into detail to define those terms. And so all, all of this to say, Paul's big idea so far in this passage is make sure you strive to be clear in your worship service so that anyone who comes in can at least understand what's being said. Third aspect of worship. The reason we want to make it clear is because that will then lead to building each other up. Our worship must be guided by what will build others up. Paul continues to address them. He says to those who are deciding to speak in a foreign language during the worship service out loud so that no one can understand that's basically what was happening in this church. It's causing all sorts of confusion. He says, quote, you may be giving thanks well enough in this foreign tongue that you're speaking, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What's his point? The clearer we are in a worship gathering, the more people are likely to be built up. It's fine if somebody wants to uh, worship God in a different 
hung well, the service is happening privately, but they were doing it out loud and it's sowing all sorts of confusion and chaos. And Paul says, no, 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 we want to make sure things are clear for everybody gathered together in the sanctuary. We want to, we want to make sure that everybody has a chance to grow as Christians. And what do we grow in? We grow in faith toward God. We grow in wisdom uh, about God and of ourselves. We grow in fellowship with one another. We grow in service to others inside and outside the church. In other words, as Romans and Ephesians tell us, we grow more and more into the image of Christ. The clearer the worship gathering is, the more we can hear the word of God unvarnished. That's the idea. And lastly, and maybe the most important thing of all, as we worship and seek to worship rightly, we need to go back to that very first verse again. Look at the beginning. It says, pursue love. Now remember, right before the beginning of this chapter is the famous love chapter where Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. You know, you've heard it at every wedding you've ever been to on the history of planet Earth, even though the passage is really not about marriage at all, but it applies, but, you know, I'll set that aside. But what I want to point out here is the word for pursue that Paul uses at the very beginning, pursue love, is also used in Greek for the word hunt or to run after with all of your might. Paul says when it comes to how we structure our worship, we want to do everything in such a way that it displays love for those around us, insider and outsider. What does this practically mean for, for you and I? Well, here's a couple of, I mean, couple of realities. Um, it means that the sermon should be at least attempted to be preached in such a way that people can sense that we tell them what we tell them because we actually care about them. We actually love them. And now, I failed at this many times, especially when I was younger. I, I, it wasn't so much that I didn't care for people, but I think I was so passionate and so zealous to get up there and preach and to make sure that I, I got everything out that I, I think I often came across, and this is just my guess, I haven't really ever had people tell me this, um, but I think I actually I came across so intense that people didn't necessarily feel the love. You know, just be like, here's the good news of the gospel. It's like, you know, what, what's going on with you, man? <laughs> so I, I think there's a tone and a cadence that us preachers ought to strive for that says to people, I care about you. I love you. We love you. We we want to welcome you. There's a, a person that I have come across recently who has, well, um, he's started to familiarize himself with the Christian faith and with the church. And one of the things that he remarked to me about that he was struggling to understand is why the people at the church he was going to were so kind, were so caring for him. There was people reaching out to him and, and taking him out to lunch and doing all sorts of, and he, he just is like, what's going on here? You know, this is unusual. Well, good. This is, this is what we want to do. We want to show people that, yeah, yeah, we really do care. We really do love you. And so here's kind of what it looks like. Um, you know, when, when the word of God is clearly proclaimed and we're built up into love for one another, we get people... Even, even the outsider looking at it going, 
boy, you know, I, I might not understand this, but I sure do like being treated such in that way. I sure do like being cared for like that. So let me wrap this up. Why do we do this? Why do we seek to worship rightly? Well, I mean, ultimately, all of this, to proclaim the word of God, um, to try and bring clarity, to build each other up, ultimately, it's all because of the love that God has shown us. It's all because of the love that God has bestowed upon us that we, in turn, want to give that love to others. And so that's ultimately the motivation for our worship gathering and for what we do in our time together, whether online or in person. Hopefully, we are still striving to meet those goals. So that's it for today. That is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 25. You can look it up and read it yourself later. Um, join us.